Mike Parker was recovering from a recent heart attack, his cardiologist told him that he should have no excitement over the next several weeks. The doctor was serious when he emphatically said, none whatsoever. So Mike's wife didn't know what to do when she got the word that a distant relative had passed, leaving them a rich inheritance in excess of some $4 million. She didn't know if she should tell Mike or not for fear that it might cause him to have another heart attack. So she called her pastor and asked for his help. About an hour later, he came over, went to the den where Mike was watching television. He said very calmly, Mike, I've got a problem and I need your help. Now, Mike loved his pastor. He turned off the television, squared his shoulders, locked eyes with his minister. So whatever I can do, I want to help. The pastor said, uh, Mike, I'm trying to uh, figure out what the average person would do if they came into a large sum of money. Uh, for example, what would you do if you learned that you just received $4 million? Without hesitation, Mike looked at his pastor and he said, the first thing I would do is i give the church $2 million. And the pastor had a heart attack. This morning, we continue our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount, simply called The Good Life. We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 and 19 to 24. It's that passage I invite you to turn your attention. So once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. We'll pick up at verse 19 and read through verse 24. Please. Hear the word. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Verse 19. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, he'll, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And on this day, we help, ask for you to help us to have a proper theology of things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
This morning's message is on the topic of money. But I need to let you know at the very outset that I don't want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. I am not trying to get anything out of you. I'm trying to get something into you. It's not that God needs your money, but you need to give God your money. From my observation, the way I see it, people regard their finances in one of two ways. Either you will worship your money or you will worship with your money. Jesus has much to say about money. In fact, uh, finances is a popular topic for the Messiah. One out of every four of his stories in his ministry have something to do with money. So when you and I come to the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by the greatest preacher we've ever heard, stands to reason that he just might have something to say about money matters. So Jesus begins our passage and he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness so that others can give you their applause. It seems that these acts of righteousness he identifies as giving, as praying, and as fasting. We see this in our passage of giving, verses 1 to 4, verses 19 to 24. He also speaks of praying in verses 5 to 15. He mentions fasting in chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. So it seems that he's entering a section of the sermon where he's describing these acts of righteousness that you and I ought to participate in and ought to do, but we should not do them for the applause of men. We should actually do them for the applause of God. So we are giving and we are praying and we are fasting. In verse 2, Jesus says that When you give to the needy, do not toot your own horn. Don't blare your own trumpet. I find it interesting that Jesus says when you give. He doesn't say if you give. There's an understanding, there's an assumption that God's people are generous people. As God has been generous to us, so we are generous to him and to others, that one of the marks of God is generosity. So as God's man and God's woman, one of the marks upon our life ought to be generosity. The statement is not if you give to the needy, but the statement is when you give to the needy. It seems that throughout all the Bible that there is this mandate for generosity. We find it in the first family. We find it in the first church. All the way back in Genesis chapter 4, apparently Adam and Eve taught Cain and Abel that when you go into worship, you got to bring something to offer to the Lord. You must bring an offering with you. So in Genesis chapter 4, we are told that Cain brought some of the fruit from the field and offered it to God. Abel brought the fat portions of the flock and he offered that unto the Lord. We read in Genesis chapter 4 that God looked with favor upon Abel and his offering, but God did not look with favor upon Cain and his offering. I've oftentimes asked myself why. Why did God look favorably upon Abel and his offering, but looked unfavorably upon Cain and his offering? Is it that God would prefer meat over fruit? The answer may be perhaps, but I think there's there's a more glaring answer that a careful reading of the text will reveal. We're told that Cain brought some of the fruit, some of the leftover fruit, some of the bruised fruit. 
Some of the fruit that Cain didn't want to eat for himself, he gave up to the Lord. So he gave God his leftovers, and God frowned on that. But Abel, Abel gave the fat portions. The fat portions were believed to be the best portion of the sacrifice, the the best part of the flock of the lamb. And so Abel was praised because he gave a top shelf offering. He gave his very best unto the Lord, not a second rate gift, not a tip, but he gave God his very best and God praised the gift of Abel and he praised his offering. That sets the stage for all of the Old Testament Because throughout the Old Testament, God's people are told that they are to bring the first fruits into the storehouse. The first fruit was the tithe. The tithe is a 10%. The first 10% of the income was to be brought into the temple and to the work of the priest. Throughout the year, they were to give offerings unto the Lord. Uh, They were to give unto those in need. They were not to be tight-fisted or hard-hearted. They were to be generous to those around them, whether they were of the people of God or aliens or foreigners. And so this whole concept of generosity is laced all throughout the Old Testament. This teaching did not escape the New Testament either. Because in Acts chapter 2, we are told that all of God's people, the church, were together. They had everything in common. They sold their possessions and their goods. They gave to anyone who had need, and God added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Apostle Paul spends one of his missionary journeys primarily for one reason, to raise money from Gentile churches so he could take it back to the church at Jerusalem, which was predominantly a Jewish uh, believing church because the saints in Jerusalem were suffering. So Paul says those Gentiles must be generous because of what has been given to them in Christ. You find this aspect of generosity in the first family of Adam and Eve. You find this generosity uh, later upon the church in Acts and throughout the New Testament. So it seems to me that this is, a, this is a characteristic of who we are as God's people. We are to be a generous people. So Jesus says, when you give, when you give to the needy, do not sound your trumpet. The Savior seems more concerned about how we give more than how much we give. Have you ever noticed that? It seems to be more of a priority to Jesus in how we give. It was John Calvin who taught that Jesus was primarily talking to the Pharisees, those hypocrites on the street. And Pharisees would wear on their uh, waistband a silver small trumpet. And Calvin would say that when these Pharisees would go and about to do an act of benevolence upon someone who was in need, they would toot their own horn. They would blare their own trumpet as if for everybody to look to see about what they were about to do. So for them, religion had become nothing more than a show. And Jesus comes along and he says, listen, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, many believe that was a cultural proverb that Jesus picked out of his society. But regardless of what it means, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. The the phrase, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, does not mean, husbands, that your wife is not really supposed to know just how much you actually spent on that new rod and reel. That's not a good application to let your left left hand not know what your right hand is doing. And, And the flip is also true, ladies. That doesn't mean that your husband ought not know how much you spend on those three summer dresses until the visa bill comes in and he has a mild heart attack. All right? So that is not the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. When Jesus is saying this, he's saying that generosity ought to be such a part of our DNA 
that our body is not even shocked when we give. Our body doesn't even notice it as if to give us self-applause, as if to give us a, a hand clap, because the left hand, in the words of Jesus, actually has a little conversation with the right hand where the left hand says, hey, right hand, what are you doing over there? What are you putting in that plate? What are you putting in that offering box? What are you giving that complete stranger on the side of the road? What are you doing over there? And the left hand has no idea what the right hand is doing because Jesus knows that you can't give a hand clap one-handed. You ever tried that? You ever tried to clap your hands one-handed? It doesn't work very well and it doesn't make very much noise. And Jesus says, exactly, that's my point. Because if you don't have self-applause and if your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, you can't clap for yourself. And you can't say, hey, look at what I'm doing and look at what I'm giving. No, Jesus seems to be preoccupied about how we give. And how we give determines a lot about who we are. So we give God our best. So we give consistently unto the work of the Lord. And so we give not for the applause of men, but we give for the applause of God. And Jesus says, God sees what is done in secret and your Father will reward you. But still though, the question oftentimes comes up, how much am I supposed to give? I mean, I know Jesus talks more about how I give versus how much I give, but still, can you and I just be honest? We really want to know how much am I really supposed to give? I mean, what, what, what's the bottom line? How much do I give in order to skate by? And, and I've already told you that the Old Testament said that you got to give initially the first 10%, the first fruit. By giving the first 10%, you're giving God all symbolically. You're saying, God, you're in charge of everything that I have, so I bring you the first fruit, the tithe, the 10%. And then on top of that is an offering. And so the Old Testament teaches the concept of tithing. And to the astute Bible student in the crowd, you sit there and you think to yourself, oh yes, but pastor, uh, we live in the days of the New Covenant, the New Testament. In the New Testament, tithing is not mentioned very much at all. In fact, in the New Testament, the only thing that's really much said about how much to give is that we ought to give generously. We ought to give joyfully. We ought to give as it has been given unto us. So it doesn't seem, Pastor, that there's any benchmark of how much uh, I ought to give. And to you, the astute individual in the crowd, I will say to you, you're exactly right. We do live under the days of the New Testament. We do live um, in, 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 in these moments and in these times. And yes, there's not a whole lot spoken about tithing in the page of the New Testament. And if I agree with you on that, you must agree with me on this, that I've never known Jesus to ever lower the bar of commitment. I have never known Jesus to lower the standard of holiness. I've never known him to lower the standard of faithfulness. I've never known him to lower the standard of purity. I've never known him to lower the standard of what's expected of us. So I think we're on pretty good ground when we say, you know what? God wants us to be joyous. He wants us to be generous. And at the very least, I think he expects for us to give him the first fruit, the, 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 the top shelf offering unto him at least 10% unto the work of the Lord in the local church. Now, Martin Luther really struggled with this. That great Reformation theologian really wrestled with how much ought I give. This is where he settled. He said, I, I ought to give God more than I can spare. Because if my gift is not sacrificial, it's no gift at all. If you only give God 
what you can spare, what you can live without. If it's not sacrificial, then it's probably not an honorable gift unto the Lord. Now, the statistics I'm about to tell you, I will admit, are a couple of years old. I do think that they still carry a great bit of accuracy. Did you know that in 2013 here at First Baptist Church Pelham, we had 1,201 giving units? A giving unit is a household. A household could be a a five-member family. It could be a husband and a wife. It, It could be a single man. It could be an elderly widow, just to name a few options. So in 2013, at this congregation, this faith family, we had 1,201 giving units. In the year of 2013, there were 535 giving units that gave nothing in that calendar year. That's 45% of the congregation. I should also tell you that out of that 1,201 giving units, 308 collectively gave in excess of $2.2 million or 88% of the income that came in in that 12-month calendar year. In that year, there were approximately $2.5 million. Uh, 308 households gave $2.2 million. There's an old adage in the church that says 20% of the people give 80% of the money. In 2013, at First Baptist Church Pelham, it was 25% of the people gave 88% of the money. Or you can also say that 75% of the people gave 12% of the money. You say, now preacher... I was tracking with you. You were doing all right until you got to meddling. What's your point? Listen, I want you to hear me clearly this morning. I do not want generosity from you. I want generosity for you. John MacArthur said it this way. When we give to God, we position ourselves in the flow of blessing. When we give to God, we position ourselves in the flow of blessing. The opposite is also true. When we refuse to give to the work of the Lord, we position ourselves outside of the flow of blessing. The principle is a biblical principle that you find all throughout of sowing and reaping. It's as ancient as agriculture. And farming is one of the oldest professions on planet earth. In fact, it's as old as dirt. And when you think about a farmer, a farmer knows the concept of sowing and reaping. Do you realize that a farmer takes everything he has in the palm of his hand and he throws it into the ground? That's what a farmer does. He takes the seed and he scatters it and he throws it in the ground in the hopes that it's going to grow, in the hopes that it's going to produce. And God brings down the rains and the crops grow and the harvest comes in. And what does the farmer do? He takes the harvest and out of that harvest, he has more seed and he plants more seed for a bigger harvest. And what does he do with that bigger harvest? He plants more seed for a greater harvest. And you see the process of sowing and reaping. And John MacArthur says that when we take what God has blessed us with, when we realize that we've been blessed to be a blessing, when we understand that uh, as, as, uh, as God has given to us, we give unto the Lord and unto his work. When we understand that, we fall in that flow of blessing. Now, I want you to hear me clearly. I am not saying that God matches us dollar for dollar. I'm not saying that if you give 100, you're going to find a $100 bill when you go to your car on the pavement. I am not saying that. In fact, you give $100 and you're probably not going to find a $100 bill. 
But what I am saying is that the blessing that the Lord is going to give you is enormous because I've heard from more than one person, you can't outgive God. You can't give yourself into poverty. Because when you give unto the work, the gospel work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you give to things that are making eternal differences in the lives of people, then you position yourself in the flow of blessing from God. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38? He says, give as it has been given unto you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, poured out into your lap. With the measure you use, it'll be used unto you. This is what Jesus says of God. That's a great verse. And what does it mean? Let me try to contemporize it just a little bit. Do you ever get aggravated when you go and buy a bag of potato chips and you come home only to discover that you did not buy a bag of potato chips, you bought half a bag of potato chips because the other half is full of air. So you paid for air in that bag. Because what happened? On the ride home, the chips began to get pressed down. They began to settle together. And you open it up and you say, what? That's it? What Jesus says is that when God gives you a bag of potato chips, when God gives you a measure, you are never going to open it up and say, what, God? That's it? That's all there is? Because God says, I will already press it down. I will already shake it together. And when you open it up, it's going to pour out into your lap. So you're going to say, oh, God, thank you for the blessings of my life. Is there anybody in the house today who's been blessed with their socks off? Anybody in the house today who says, God, God, you've been giving so much to me. You are so good. You are so mighty. You are so majestic. You have blessed me more than I deserve. You have blessed me more than I can imagine. This is what Jesus says, that when you give to God, you position yourself in the flow of blessing. So Jesus says, do not store it for yourself treasure on earth, but store it for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, and thieves cannot break in and steal. In the days of Jesus, worldly wealth was revealed in garments, grain, and gold. If you had wealth, you showed it in your garments. If you had wealth, you had a plethora of grain. If you had wealth, you accumulated gold. And in this world, there's a problem with those things because you can't keep them secure. You can't keep them from rotting away and you can't keep them from being stolen because garments fade and a moth can come in and eat it away. Grain can spoil. In fact, the word rust literally means to be eaten, eaten by varmints. And it's possible that if you store too much grain away, it becomes a house for a rat and little varmints can get in and they can eat up all your grain and your gold. If you keep a lot of gold you become number one on the list of the robbers. They want to come in and they want to steal everything that you've got. I always find it interesting that gold, which is so highly valued here in this world, is nothing more than pavement in the world to come. Because we're going to walk on streets of gold, right? Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. Because if all you're involved in is just worldly matters, then it won't matter all that much. Because garments and grain will spoil and fade, and gold will be stolen. So you store up for yourself treasure in heaven. 
you ask yourself the question, how do I do that? How do I store up treasure in heaven? Jesus tells another story in the Gospel of Luke. It's there where Jesus says the bottom line is, use your worldly wealth to win friends so that you can have an eternal investment in their life. So that when all the money is gone and when life runs out, they can welcome you into your eternal dwelling. Jesus says you use your wealth, you use your resources to further the kingdom of God. You use your worldly wealth to invest in gospel ministry. You make sure that your local church is standing on the word of God and proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ because that is what God will bless. And when you partner with your church and when you partner with other Christian organizations that do that work, then you are advancing the kingdom. And God says you're using your worldly wealth to win friends for all of eternity because you're investing in them and you're investing in their soul in their life and you will be greeted by them not only but will Christ greet you but those individuals will greet you as you step out of this world and step into the celestial shore as you cross over they will be there and they will say thank you for giving unto the Lord and Jesus says don't treasure for yourself treasure on earth but you send it ahead. Can I tell you how we try to do this as a church? As a church, we give away at least 14% of our annual income. 14% of our budget is, is given away. That's at the very least. I'm still learning. I've only been here a few months, but from what I can gather, that's what we do. 14%, 10% goes to cooperative program, which is a a program that all Southern Baptist churches agree with and they pull their funds and their resources. So by you giving a dime of every dollar that you give, it literally helps to support missionaries and ministries throughout the United States and throughout the world. 2% of our annual budget goes to the Shelby Baptist Association for Local Missions. 2% stays here in the church and is used to help fund mission activities, many of which we've spotlighted in our mission moments. 14% of our annual budget is given away. That's equivalent to $350,000. Can I let you in on a little secret? I really believe that number is going to double in the next few years. I believe that number will double in the next few years because we're going to position ourselves in such a way that we are in the flow of God's blessing. We are going to give to the work of the gospel, to the advancement of the kingdom. We're going to put our, our, our money where our mouth is. And I really believe that while $350,000 is wonderful, I think that pales in comparison to what God wants to do in and through this church. And I think that in a few years, we'll look back and that number will be half of what we will be given at that time. To God be the glory for the great things. Jesus says, don't store it for yourself treasure on earth. You store it for yourself treasure in heaven. Then Jesus talks about this aspect of eyes. And you think to yourself, what does the eye have to do with money? Jesus says, if you have good eyes, you have light for the whole body. If you have bad eyes and darkness, then darkness covers the entire body. What in the world does that have to do with money? The answer is this. How you handle money is the key to your spiritual insight. How you handle your money is the key to your spiritual insight. How we handle our money is a thermometer of how we handle the things of God. In Luke's gospel, um, there are two stories put side by side. One is the rich young ruler, the other is the story of Zacchaeus. They're right side by side, one chapter to the next. The rich young ruler, he walks away sad from Jesus because he has great wealth. He cannot give up his possessions. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus says, 
Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house for this man too is a son of Abraham. I wanna be very clear. Zacchaeus was saved that day, not because he gave away a large sum of money. He gave away a large sum of money because he was saved that day. Because the way we handle our money is the key to our spiritual sight. So Jesus says, if you have good eyes, there's light in the entire body. If you're blind as a bat, monetarily, there's darkness. And how great will that darkness be? So Jesus concludes our last verse. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Some of you say, but pastor, uh, I've got two masters. I mean, I've got two jobs. I've got two supervisors. Some of you may say, I live with my wife and my mother-in-law. I've got two masters. What does Jesus mean by this? His understanding of bond servants was that there's always single ownership. A slave can only be owned by one master. A slave could only be owned by one master. And Jesus says, one of the competing masters over your life is money. Why? Because some of us are possessed by our possessions. Some of us are gripped by greed. I'll never forget what Haddon Robinson told us. He was my, one of my preaching professors. He said, we to money are like a fly to flypaper. The fly will land on the flypaper and say, gotcha, only to discover that the flypaper says to the fly, no, I've got you. And far too many of us, we land on our money and we hold it in our hands and we say, gotcha, only to discover that our money says to us, no, I've got you. And far too many of us are slaves to our money. We're shackled by our money. We wish we had more money because none of us have enough money. And Jesus says, listen, you've got you to know where your allegiance is. Um, either you will worship your money or you'll worship with your money. The greatest way to loosen the grip of greed on your life is to give. The greatest way to loosen the grip of greed on your life is to give. John Calvin succinctly said that where money has dominion over your heart, it's in that place that God has lost his authority in your life. You cannot serve both God and money. So today, today what we say to Jesus is that great hymn writer who said, I surrender it all. All to Jesus I surrender and all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. For some of us, what that means is that we surrender our heart unto the Lord. For some of us, that means we surrender our wallets unto the Lord. This day we say unto Jesus, I give you my money. I give you my marriage. I give you my children. I give you my family. I give you my future. I give you my agenda. I give you 
you my plans. I give you my fears. I give you my stress. I give you my victory. I give you all that I am. Lord Jesus, I lay it all at your feet. I give it to you because you gave everything unto me. My friends, we are generous unto God because God has been generous unto us because God did not spare his own son, but he gave the crown jewel of heaven. He gave Jesus the Christ and Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth and he took your place and he took my place and he died on a cross of wood and Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe because sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus is generous to me. I must be generous to him because Jesus is generous to me. I must be generous to others because Jesus is my master. I am his servant. So on this day, I say to you and I say to the world, I belong to Christ. So the church at First Baptist Pelham on this day waves the white flag of surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. So this morning, whatever you need to surrender unto the Lordship of Christ, do so at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for your word as tough and challenging as it is. And Father, on this day we pray that we will surrender whatever it is that shackles us so that we may be a doulos, a bondservant of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.